The following content is meant purely for educational and informational purposes and should not be relied upon as financial, investment, legal, tax, or any other professional advice. This is the Fundamentals Podcast, where we demystify crypto and help you navigate this ever-evolving internet native economy. In this episode of the Fundamentals Podcast, we're joined by Evan Fisher, the founder of Portal Ventures, a fund that accelerates the protocol economy through business fundamentals. In this episode with Evan, we discuss Portal Ventures, their investment strategy, and how they work with the projects they invest in. We discuss what makes crypto interesting and what the most common misconceptions are that traditional investors have about the asset class. We speak about the pros and cons of liquid venture, crypto business models, and whether crypto protocols are marketplace or software businesses, and discuss what developments Evan is most excited about in crypto right now. Tune in for a great discussion about the fundamentals of crypto. Hi, Evan. Welcome to the Fundamentals Podcast. It is great to have you on today and to speak a bit about Portal Ventures and then also your approach to the whole crypto space. Yeah, thank you for, for having me. Now, before we dive into the details behind Portal and start picking your brain about how you're thinking about crypto, could you maybe give us a quick uh, overview of your background and how you got to running a crypto fund now? Definitely. I grew up a bit of a finance nerd, actually. So in high school, I would watch CNBC before st- school started. I would trade options on Apple in the back of math class. Um, and then I started my career at Goldman Sachs covering industrials in investment banking. So the entire other side of the universe. And there we saw a lot of things. We saw complex mergers. We saw SPACs before SPACs were a thing. We saw activist defense, et cetera. I then joined Insight Partners in early 2019. When I joined, it was really a leading growth equity firm. And when I left, it was the leading and the largest venture firm globally. Really exciting time to be there and had the opportunity to invest across really great companies in software, internet, fintech. I ultimately led the the crypto efforts there. I first got into crypto some time ago through a high school best friend, and I I was doing it realistically on the side at first. And then I increasingly realized, wow, there's there's something here that is more than just interesting products and ideas. It's a new asset class. And I realized that at Insight. And I also realized, okay, new asset classes typically create new types of investors. There's a reason Blackstone is not the world's greatest venture fund, for instance. And the question then just became, where and how do I I do this? Awesome. Yeah, I think so many people can resonate with the fact that uh, crypto started as a bit of a side thing. You know, you're just experimenting. But then when it clicks, you realize that, all right, the opportunity cost is too high. You just need to go all in into that space. Uh, this asset class is so fascinating. But yeah. Now, uh, Portal Ventures then, what does that look like? I launched Portal about a year and a half ago. Continuing with the story from from earlier, there were two realizations I had when I thought about what I wanted to do. Number one is a lot of funds have gotten way too big, which means they sacrificed agility. And because crypto is such an emerging asset class, you you need that agility because it helps you find risk reward. It helps you find the pockets that make sense based off the cost of capital. That's number one. Number two is I, I realized almost every investor in the room was a technologist. And if you think about the internet investing, like OGs, Mary Meeker, Bill Gurley, they realistically came from Wall Street. They were internet native, if we want to use that term, but they came from Wall Street. So I said, okay, this is where the industry is going. So I I launched Portal. The largest investors in Fund One are partner capital from Insights. So supportive relationship there. And the idea was, okay, how do we, as Insight created a firm built on software investing frameworks and principles, how do we do that for protocols? Because if protocols are the next great business model, the reality is, 
there will be investment firms that master that and generate really impressive returns by doing that before others do. In terms of where we focus, it's really based off agility. So that means primarily early stage investment opportunities. And then we mapped out crypto and said, okay, what's the equivalent of verticals within crypto? In software and internet, you have enterprise software, consumer software, fintech, a couple of other categories. In, in crypto, we said, okay, you have protocols and protocol infrastructure, so necessarily token projects. You have digital assets, which could be CFI, it could be DeFi. You have blockchain software, you have open internet, and then you have consumer. And so we, we focus on protocols and protocol infrastructure, on digital assets, um, and then on what we call open internet. Yeah, I love that. And because we're all about frameworks here at Token Terminal, we like to simplify the framing of most businesses in a way that, you know, most crypto protocols connect supply side and demand side participants, just like traditional marketplace companies. And I've before played with the thought of applying the similar marketplace framework to funds as well, with the supply side being your LPs and the demand side being the projects you invest in. And as marketplace businesses need to solve a problem for both the demand side and the supply side participants for there to be product market fit, I wanted to ask you what the main problem is that Portal Ventures solve for your LPs? I'd, I'd actually push back on that framework ah, a bit. Please do. Which is to say, I, I don't think that most all protocols or funds are marketplace businesses. Like it, we can look to Ethereum, for instance. Ethereum is not a marketplace. Ethereum selling a software product. And it just so happens that the suppliers of that product are not inside of Ethereum itself. Like Ethereum is not a company, obviously. Similarly, funds, like I sell a product at the end of the day. And that product is the portfolio of companies that I invest in. And I guess the, the big difference is there's so much more value add and thought that goes into this than purely a marketplace. Amazon handles delivery, for instance, but they're not actually enriching the products, choosing the products, et cetera. And so to answer your question directly, there are two big problems we solve. Number one is crypto is a new asset class with a lot of noise. And number two is it's a new market structure and a new type of investing. On the former, we're close enough to crypto that we realistically understand what is real and what's not real. But we take it a step further. We say, okay, how do we translate this back to the traditional world? How do we translate this back to the executive on Wall Street or someone that's used to investing in traditional venture funds? And we can do that because, again, we come from that world. It makes it easier to understand how do you think about something like Ethereum as a software business, as I mentioned, as opposed to a protocol that has an unclear business model, which is the perspective a lot of traditional investors might have. To the, the second around market structure and dynamics, Again, the fundamentals come in. It's the ability to have pattern recognition and say, okay, what is the order of magnitude of an opportunity like this? Is it, if it works, a billion dollar outcome, a $10 billion outcome, a $100 billion outcome? And that's critical because if LPs are investing in us to understand the market, to get realistically capture that, that value that's being created, you need to be agile enough to go in at the stage that makes sense. But you also need to understand the order of magnitude of, of what can be created. And that's where the risk reward math then comes in. Yeah, got it. And a uh, good pushback on the framework as well. Overly simplifying things always comes with certain imperfections. So yeah, I do agree that it can downplay the complexity of a fund and the product that you are offering to LPs to just speak of it as a marketplace business. But on the Ethereum example you brought up, uh, you mentioned that Ethereum is selling a software product, which is true. But with that product being block space that is enabled by the supply side participants, so validators and brought to an open market, that users can pay for. Wouldn't you say that Ethereum could be thought of as a marketplace business, a marketplace for block space? I prefer to look at Ethereum as a software product. And I would look at something like Uniswap as closer to a marketplace. If we dig into Ethereum itself, the way I view that business is the product they sell is, like you said, block space, effectively access to 
a database. They sell them to variable costs, depending on how much demand there is for block space at any point in time. Their cost of goods sold is to the cost of consensus. It's paying validators effectively. And then there's realistically like gross profit and EBITDA margins are pretty close to the same for something like Ethereum. And, you know, the, the reality is it's it's neither a pure software business nor a marketplace. But I do think that the lens of a software business makes more sense from a line item perspective. Okay, sure. I get that. And it's definitely not easy to categorize these projects according to models we've become used to in the traditional world. So I do agree with what you said there about it probably being neither. But do you have a mental model for how to make the distinction between what is a software or product business and what is a marketplace business in crypto? What, what makes the difference there? I think it's a function of how much the protocol is actually adding. We, we could ask the same question of why is Amazon a marketplace and Microsoft is a software business. And obviously one dynamic of it is that Microsoft's building things internally versus externally. But there aren't really any protocols that are building the product exclusively internally. Like the, the nature of a protocol is that it allows machines to talk to one another. So, so my, my mental model is around what's actually being added from a value per perspective. And then also what do the margins end up looking like? Like if the vast majority is going out to the providers of the product, it's probably better to look at it through the lens of the marketplace. But I think this touches on a really interesting meta point, which is the reality is it's neither. Like it's a new business model and it has yet to be defined in proper terms, but it, it's a new business model and we can take these frameworks. But just as everyone talked about, you know, like over the last bull cycle, skeuomorphism, they were like, are products too skeuomorphic? Do they too necessarily resemble past Web2 products? We should talk about that too when thinking about business models. It's going to be something new. We can learn from the past, but it's something new. Yeah, that's, that's a great meta point. And kind of building on top of that, I want to ask you being classically trained and having a background at Goldman and then Inside Partners, what would you say are the biggest misconceptions that like traditional investors have about crypto outside of the most obvious ones? So let's first look at crypto and think about what, what actually is it? What's, what's happening here? And that'll help set the level to then go in and say, okay, what are the misconceptions? Crypto is very parallel to what happened in software. So if you look at software, two things happened. Number one, it created new products. Number two, it created new business models. We started talking about some of the new business models just now, but the new products and software, things like accounting software, for instance, that was definitively better than just hiring an accountant. But the business model innovation was around the scalability and the profitability of it. You know, you, you can't run an accounting business with human capital and produce 80% gross margins. A software business can though. And the result was you saw software businesses scale faster than businesses had ever scaled before and do so with profitability that was really unmatched. And that created trillions of dollars of market cap. And so, so protocols are doing the same thing. Like Ethereum, Uniswap, they're new products. They are not possible without blockchains and crypto, but they're also new business models that we talked about. And the power of the business model is similar to software again in that they scale faster than we've seen before. And they do it with capital efficiency. So something like Ethereum, for instance, scaled to the equivalent of a billion dollars in EBITDA faster than any business that we've ever seen. So that's kind of like what's happening here. If we then look at what investors are getting wrong, it's that they're looking at protocols as if they are software businesses entirely. And that's to say a lot of people underwrite protocols as if they were a traditional software business or internet marketplace. And that that's a problem for a few reasons. Number one is the quality of revenue is so structurally different. Like you can't look at an enterprise software business that has annual contracts with large customers and compare the growth trends of that to the growth 
in a crypto business because crypto is going to scale faster because there's no sales motion, but it's also less retentive because, well, it's not an annual contract. That's the first issue in approaching it like a software business. The second is the stages of de-risking are not at all the same. If you are investing into a series A for an enterprise software business, there absolutely needs to be revenue on the board. And you're going to say, okay, has the revenue validated product market fit of this business? And then do I believe that by investing capital, they can grow and inflect on revenue? Now, that's not how you evaluate every growth asset, though, or emerging asset. Biotech, for instance, by no means is evaluated in that way. Like There are many Series A's that are done in biotech or pharma, where all that's been done is the product's been de-risked by building it, passing clinical trials, something like that. So it's a different life cycle. And again, protocols are a different life cycle. There are protocols where you can actually write a Series A check, even if they don't have revenue and it's appropriately de-risked for a number of reasons. Could be like the team's actually shipped and developed a very complicated technical challenge. There are integrations that have happened that are creating moats, things like that. So in summary, the second big issue is that people just are approaching it in the same way they would approach software de-risking. And that's, that's simply not true. Yeah, exactly. And as you at Portal Ventures are experts in business models, which is also clear in the way you speak about them, how do you approach valuing these emerging assets whose business models might not be that clear yet, or there are no cash flows? To be super clear, it is focused on cash generation and value generation over the medium to long run. It's simply saying you cannot evaluate the likelihood of a business being very profitable and therefore valuable in the early stages based exclusively on the revenue that it's generating for a protocol. So, so that's an important thing to, to clarify. Now, if we look at the business models, again, we can say, what does this resemble? Again, what's the framework to approach this with? And it usually resembles things that aren't that crazy complicated. So if we go back to Ethereum, my mental model for Ethereum is it most resembles a software business. Now, the difference and where it does get more complicated and require more expertise is around the mechanisms by which it's actually generating that revenue. It's going to market. It's running its value capture, etc. So unlike a traditional software business, Ethereum doesn't sell to enterprises. It realistically gets developers onto the network. It's like a protocol to developer to application go to market motion. So you can look at it and you could say, okay, how efficiently are layer ones like Ethereum actually acquiring developers? Are they acquiring developers at a rate that seems to be profitable? Does it make sense for them to continue acquiring developers? Does it show product market fit? And then over time, those developers build applications and those applications drive ultimately demand for, for block space. So again, it's, it's a simple business model framework, but it's the mechanisms by which it's actually implemented that is entirely unique to crypto and, and to protocols. Got that. Given that, and one of the biggest differences between like traditional venture and then investing in crypto is that crypto is liquid venture. And that's been a bit of a struggle for a lot of funds to get into the base, or at least a cause of confusion for many on how they should approach it. So could you maybe speak quickly about what you see as the pros and cons of liquid venture and how that has changed the game? Definitely. I'll actually start off with the implications for companies before going into the implications for investors, because th th this is something I feel strongly on, which is if you think about the liquidity profile of crypto for companies, it does really weird things to their cost of capital, which is to say, if you're a traditional venture business and you're growing, you're typically doing up rounds. You 
can kind of predict what your cost of capital to finance the business and the growth going forward will look like. In crypto, you're subject to market conditions, though. And so I, I find there are a lot of projects that actually went liquid too early, and that can destroy the project. Because if you go liquid and all of a sudden the capital markets are not managed, you could find yourself in a situation where your Series A product traction, but liquid markets are valuing you like a pre-seed or a seed business, which means you can't actually raise enough capital and monetize your equity slash token at a rate that's reasonable to, to grow the business. So that's the first thing I'd caution. As it relates to investors, though, two big things that happen as a result of having this liquidity profile. Number one is you get liquidity earlier. And that's, again, because these businesses can go liquid, these protocols can go liquid at a stage which is not equivalent to IPO stage. And so it's the equivalent of maybe being a Series B, Series C stage company that then is, is going liquid. If it's done appropriately, where the token needs to exist, where the story is like appropriate, that the marketing makes sense, the marketing makes sense and that people understand the product, why it's valuable, why it can be big then you end up with a really attractive time to liquidity. And that's something I think that LPs are excited about. That's, well, in traditional venture, you know, you have to wait 10 years from a pre-seed to seed investment, if not longer, to actually realizing uh, and monetizing the investment via an IPO. In, in crypto, you could monetize pre-seed and seed investment in three to five years. Now, to be clear, we hold for the long term. We are long-term investors, but we have the opportunity to. And should the market price something such that realistically, it's no longer in our return threshold, i.e. like we aim for venture-like returns. If that starts to disappear, we have the opportunity to take some chips off the table. The second idea is that you can typically recoup capital as well. So if you were to invest in a venture stage business that was liquid, or if you were to invest in private business that then goes liquid, maybe they get to a Series B stage. A Series B company can't really go public in traditional markets, but crypto reduces the barriers to realizing liquidity, which means that you actually then have fewer things that you never see capital for, which again changes the math on a portfolio for, for a crypto venture investor. Yeah, those are all great points and definitely feels like the pros of liquid venture outweigh the cons, but the timing issue around going liquid is definitely one that projects need to put a lot of thought into. But yeah, now moving on to how you source, analyze, and make decisions on deals at Portal, could you walk me through your investment process? The biggest thing for us on sourcing is we find deals before they are deals. And we do that through three big vectors. N number one is being thesis driven and thematic. So Katrina on our team, for instance, did a deep dive into MEV and into AI earlier this year. That allows us to have interesting perspectives on categories before they're a thing and to meet the founders building there before they're raising. And it's, it's an advantage that we love having. It's also something that helps us better underwrite. Number two is spending a lot of time around universities. That could be researchers, it could be professors, it could also be blockchain organizations. We help organize some conferences across U.S. universities. And so we're, we're close to the talent itself. And then number three is going to research-oriented events. That could be the FHE Summit in Tokyo earlier this year, or it could be hosting salons around specific topics. Maybe it's going to a mechanism design salon as an example. And so those three vectors help us find the most exciting things. When it comes to diligencing, we're, we're really prepared minds. We look exclusively where we're excited and have a perspective. So that means that we move fast with opinions and conviction. We like to spend time with the founders. It's, it's a marriage at the end of the day. Like if a company works well, protocol is going to work well. You're ideally working with this founder 
for 10 years into the future. And so we, we like spend a lot of time thinking about how they think, what's their perspective on the world? How do they manage challenges? What's their vision? Why are they excited to build this? There are quite literally a million things anyone could do with their time. Like why are they going to spend 100 hours a week doing exclusively this thing for the next few years? That's a key question. In terms of the decision-making approach, it's then back to the risk reward. It's saying, okay, what do you have to believe for this investment to return the fund or to generate cap gains that make it worth the cost of capital. And so there it's saying, you have to believe this is what the market turns into. And this is the product advantage they have. And this is how they execute on go-to-market. And you look at that and you say, okay, is that reasonable? Like, is it reasonable that they can do this and the result is uh, 5 billion, 10 billion, whatever the outcome ends up being, that size of business? And if yes, then we move and we move with, with conviction. Something I see a lot in the market right now is, Everyone's looking around trying to find signal. It's something that VCs always do, but it's happening a lot right now. And that's to say there are deals, there are investments we make where we're spending a month with the founder, sometimes longer. We put down a term sheet first and a round that was not yet coming together all of a sudden is oversubscribed because people aren't actually doing the work on their own. They're, they're looking for peers to de-risk the businesses. And so that's something that we, we don't do. We, we do the work and when we move, we move with conviction. Got it. Yeah. The best deals are the ones that aren't deals yet. And beyond that, often the best deals can be non-obvious too. Like if you rerun the tape and say, okay, what's the performance of some very hyped deals versus deals that went under the radar? You know, there's a blue chip or several blue chips every cycle that actually was like a very non-obvious investment. And so that's another thing I, I think a lot about. I won't share specific names, but like th there are projects that are now seen as like the darlings of the industry that struggled to raise pre-seed and seed rounds. And so for us, it's, it's about how do we build conviction on our own and look for those opportunities? Because the reality is looking to peers to find them is, is not the correct approach. Yeah. And how would you categorize this stage that you invest in as we've spoke about both like really early pre-launch projects and then some more mature ones too? We're primarily early stage because we think that's where the best risk reward is. We also think that's where our advantage is, which is to say, when we invest into a pre-seed or seed business that's raising, call it three to $4 million, we can put a check to work that is real skin in the game for us. It can return the fund, which means that we can actually go to bat for the founder. That's something large funds can't do. Like if, if you manage several hundred million, you can't write a meaningful million dollar check. The math just doesn't work. So it's primarily early stage. But the reality is there are a lot of great businesses some great businesses that are more mature and still offer really attractive risk reward profiles. So we're, we're not dogmatic about it. Yeah, that makes total sense. Now, as Liquid Venture does change the playing field for realizing profits from an investor's point of view, as it's not anymore just the binary option of either an IPO or acquisition versus going bust, but instead there's more flexibility along the way. Does that change the way you think about kind of the theoretically required return multiple for every project you invest in? So does every investment you make have to fit into the pretty common VC math model of it having to theoretically have the potential to return the entire fund? Or are you also comfortable investing in projects where you might see that the maximum theoretical return multiple could be a five to 10x? It depends on the risk of the investment. You know, it's, it's hard to justify something that's high risk and only can do a 10x if it works. Certainly, if we think there's something that can do a 10x and we see a really attractive risk profile, like a pretty high conviction about it, we're, we're not going to not do it just because it can't return fund. That, that's very valuable to have. 
in a portfolio because it anchors the returns. And so the short answer is it it depends. We like to have a mix, but it depends on the specific asset. Got it. And then what kind of role does data play in your investment process? I, I'd note that a lot of our investments are typically done before the project goes liquid. So for those investments, there's only so much data that you can pull on. Now, the way we do pull on data, though, is to look at how do we understand like the demand, the product market fit, the market size and that sort of stuff. I think for more mature projects, you certainly can look at something and say, okay, what is the fee revenue? How is that trended over time? What's being driven by? But with all that said, the industry is so early. And so there's a question to be had of to what extent is data today representative of where we're going in the future, which is to say, if I look at call it unibots, like percentage of uniswap fees over the last 30 days, there's no world in which that is representative of the fee composition of uniswap in 10 years time. So we take it with caution. I think it's more relevant when you're making more short term trades and, and trading on, on momentum, but that's not what we're doing realistically. So then where does the data come in? It comes in and saying, how do we size up an opportunity? And how do we think about just like, is this a market that is starting to realize, you know, bips of its terminal value, or is it starting to realize a few percentage points of its terminal value in terms of the TAM that's addressable? So that's how we think about it. But again, it's really hard to generalize because it is such an emerging category. Sure. makes sense. Now, as one big selling point for crypto has kind of been the access to real-time and open source data feeds, which enables like contradicts improvements on a lot of different fronts, but for example, also in like data-driven investing. In your approach, as your investment horizon is actually so long-term, is it so that you typically prioritize other factors over data? It's both, but I'm certainly not one to extrapolate out data that has a low confidence interval. Then you end up running into a position of saying open seas volumes going to continue inflecting. And so when you see interesting data, like we, we absolutely take it into account, but we put it in the context of what's happening. And that's again, where the crypto nativity is so important. Like, whereas a traditional investor might look at something like OpenSea and say, wow, this momentum is world-class, they don't necessarily appreciate what's happening and why that, that volume exists. And you need to really be on the ground to, to understand that. And so it's like, we certainly absorb data, but we absorb it in context. And then we paint the picture of what will this look like long-term. I can give another example. You could look at like the financial statements you all provide right now, which are super helpful for more mature assets, like Ethereum, for instance. There I could say, wow, Ethereum's business model is largely set like it may, it's going to evolve, but it makes sense. I could make a pitch right now that Ethereum next cycle has 50% plus EBITDA margins and can become like one of the most profitable businesses in the world. And so their data is really valuable. I can say what fees do you need to believe for this to actually trade at a reasonable like earnings multiple. And that's how traditional investors will start to approach that in the next one to two cycles, realistically. At the same time, I could look at something like Solana and there I could say, wow, it's, it's actually like burning right now. But I'm not going to say, oh, that means it's going to be unprofitable forever. Like I'm going to put that data in context. I'm going to say, what do I have to believe for Solana to turn profitable? And I can build a case for that happening. And upon building that case, I can then say, oh, this is what you need to believe in fee revenue. This is what you need to believe in the business model switch. And this would be the resulting data. So that's data that's harder to extrapolate right now on the surface. Exactly. Uh, I got to say that I do love the way that you think about these things. Data can definitely be pretty useless without context. And your approach to this space, just based on this discussion, seems really advanced given the nascence of the market. So I can imagine that you have quite a lot to give to the teams that you decide to back. Could you speak a bit about how you in practice work with the projects that you invest in? I'll start by saying it's bespoke for 
every founder. I find a lot of funds like to generalize and say, this is like the exact playbook we, we run. And frankly, when you're a founder, sometimes like I've seen it happen, you get kind of dazzled by it. You're like, wow, they do these five things in this exact order and that's how it works. And that's going to be super helpful. And then they take the money and they realize, oh, n- none of these are actually relevant. That was great marketing material, but it's not relevant to us because venture firms are selling capital. They're selling their time and they're selling capital and that's a product. So the first part is it's bespoke. An- another example of that is like there are quarters where founders want to talk to you all the time. And there are quarters where founders just want you to be out of their way because what matters most is they can be heads down building. So we adapt. Now, what matters most is three things. From my perspective, it's number one, that you pick up when they call and you're available when they need you, right when they need you. Like that should be table stakes. It's frankly not in our industry though. Number two is that when you do talk, you bring a thoughtfulness and expertise uh, that's actually valuable because there are also many people that provide advice, which is frankly value destructive. And that's the worst thing you can do for a company. And number three is then when there are inflection points and there are things that you see more of than they do, your hands on to help drive at those inflection points. That's how we, we think about it. To us, those inflection points are things like running through a strategy revamp, building out the roadmap, thinking about go to market, thinking about value capture, thinking about fundraising. And the, the reason for that is it's something that's horizontal. Like it goes across every business. And because it's horizontal, that means I as an investor have seen more of this than any founder will in their lifetime. Like maybe you launch three businesses. And you raise three times for those. So you see nine fundraises call. Like we see nine fundraises all the time. We see hundreds of fundraises a week. We participate in tens of fundraises. And so we, we can be super hands-on and, and valuable on that front. In terms of then how I poured over like the traditional thinking, it, it's always about, okay, if you want to build a real business and a real protocol here, you have to answer the question of why does a long-only hedge fund want to own your token in 10 years time? Because it's not retail that's driving long-term returns and building large outcomes. It's going to be institutions. And so there, the problem you're solving is like, how do you actually create a really valuable product in a large market with the potential for moats and therefore pricing power? And we help execute on that by saying, this is how you could think about your value capture mechanisms. This is how you can think about your go-to-market, how you can port over ideas from like traditional software and create a native go-to-market here. But that, that's at a high level how we, how we think about everything and, and where we plug in. And I think the reality is it's also a needed approach in the market. I find so many funds have been so focused on how do we help you technically. And I, I want to invest in founders that are experts in the product they're building. Like we're dangerous there, but I want to be more dangerous on something that's complementary. Because if not, then everyone in the room is a technologist. And when everyone's in the room is a technologist, you end up with, well, the market that we've had for the past few years, which is a lot of great tech, not great businesses, and therefore not much value. The approach to working with these projects needs to be bespoke. So that's great to hear. I think that actually a value providing way for the companies. It's not just the marketing pitch on a website. And as well, what you said there about the technologists, do you, do you feel that right now there is enough like product and biz dev talent in crypto or are we still severely lacking we we definitely need more is, is that something that you as a fund are, are you actively working on helping people transition to crypto or get that talent into this space yeah we we do i think this is another thing where, where it's just like the biggest infrastructure piece that's missing is getting people up to speed in crypto because you could be a marketer 
for an internet business. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be able to market appropriately in crypto. So, so it's like it grows in cohorts because people need to build up the experience. And once they build the experience, they become very valuable talent in the ecosystem. That's definitely true. Are there any case examples that you'd be able to share about investment that you have made and kind of walk through why you made the investment and then how you've been supporting them? Yeah, I'll speak to a protocol I invested in in Q4 of last year. It's called Blueprint, and they're, they're building a protocol called Concrete. I met the founders, Nick and Dylan of Blueprint, through an angel network. We spent a lot of time with them and got really excited for the following reason. What, what they're building is an entirely new DeFi primitive. And a lot of people look at DeFi and they say, oh, so much has been built. How can there possibly be anything new? I look at DeFi and I say, a lot's been built. A lot's been kind of overly simplistic. It hasn't been interesting. That said, there are going to be net new primitives that are multi-billion dollar outcomes. And to that, I can point to traditional finance, like credit default swaps were not invented until 1994. And it's a multi-trillion dollar market today. So to say that all primitives in DeFi have already been invented is simply wrong. What do they do? Well, they had an insight, which is debt is such an important instrument in capital markets, but debt doesn't actually exist in DeFi. Like we have lending markets. Those are actually futures contracts. They're futures contracts because you're liquidated on basis, not on defaulting on your interest payments. And that's a huge issue. Like it's an issue because A, people get liquidated. B, people have to manage their collateralization, optimize more than they should have to. But most importantly is new use cases come on chain. Like institutions are not going to use futures contracts. Large investors are not going to use futures contracts. They're going to use debt instruments. And so what Blueprint does is they unlock real credit markets in DeFi. It's a primitive that allows you to underwrite the debt. And from there, effectively wrap these futures contracts in instruments which make it such that you default on credit, not on liquidation. And from that, you can start to build a lot of interesting products over time. I won't go into a ton of specifics, but there's a long tail of products that can be built on top of, of this primitive. In terms of what got us over the line and, and how we diligenced the investment, it was really spending time with the founders. Like I said, just jamming out with Nick and Dylan. They both come from traditional finance, but are very crypto native. And we were talking not just about the products and about how you would underwrite this, but talking about traditional financial markets, like who are structured investment firms that we really respect? How do we take lessons from Fortress, for instance, and apply it to crypto? How do we think about the products that exist on Wall Street, how risk is unbundled and rebundled? And from that, you start to realize, wow, that the TAM of this is pretty incredible and they have the insights needed, plus the financial expertise needed to actually build it. So, so we led the pre-seed investment in Q4 of last year. And you know, I've been helping the team as they they ship and it's super impressive because they ship faster than almost anyone I've I've seen in crypto, but do it with depth. And so they should go live later this year or or early next year. And again, I think it touches on a theme that I'm excited about, which is DeFi is going to create net new primitives and those will be multi-million dollar outcomes. Thank you for sharing. Uh, that sounds like a really interesting case. And uh, tagging on to the developments that you're most interested about in crypto right now, that is one. Um, what else would you pinpoint at the moment as the developments that you're most excited about? Another is new forms of L1s emerging. Like when Ethereum came out, everyone was in the Bitcoin sandbox. Like everyone was looking at Bitcoin and they were like, oh, this is something weird and funky, but it was an entirely different sandbox to, to play. And for the past few years, everyone's been in the Ethereum sandbox. They've been saying, oh, we're going to have layer one protocols, but it's going to be all about the trilemma. Like is Aptos better? Is Sui better? Is like you name the L1, they're abundant ones and they're all talking about the trilemma. But 
we're now seeing new layer one protocols emerge or continue to be developed that are totally different. It's a totally different sandbox. And so they're something like Filecoin, something like Urbit. They're just structurally different layer one protocols that are not competing with Ethereum, but are complementary, built for different use cases and have different trade-off matrices. So that's another theme that I'm, I'm excited about. And then the last one would be just the increasing institutional interest in the asset class. There's a lot of talk about like the BlackRock Bitcoin ETF, for instance. I think it's reasonable that in the next few years, people are going to start looking at Ethereum and saying, wow, this is one of the most unique assets in the world. I was going through um, your, your financial statements recently, for instance, and I said, okay, what happens if you plot out the profitability of Ethereum every month of this year? And so peak profitability this year would have been about 60% margins. And then I said, okay, what if you were to apply this new business model? Because proof of stake is just a new business model versus proof of work. It changes the way you produce the product to be more capital efficient. What if you apply this new business model pro forma to last bull cycle? And what you would find is like peak profit effectively, peak run rate profit would have been in the teens on billions. And so what you pretty quickly realize is if we're an order of magnitude larger in the next five to 10 years on fees and therefore profit versus peak of last cycle, this very quickly becomes one of the most profitable businesses in the world. And if you're a long only hedge fund and you start to think about how do you underwrite that or just any asset manager, how do you underwrite that? You start to realize at some point that it's an asset that you, you can't afford to not own. So that's something that I think is also on the horizon. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. Now, just one final question to wrap this up. How would you summarize the main problem that you as a fund face in this space? Um, I think it's actually a lot of what we've talked about, which is like the business models are emerging and are by no means de-risked. And so we, we just need more thought around that. And we need more people asking the question of like, how are these things going to be really value captive, valuable assets over the next decade? It's great that you are asking that question. And we will try our best to echo that over here at Token Terminal. Thank you so much, Evan, for taking the time to do this today and share some great insights about your approach to the market. And I hope we can talk again soon. For sure.